Go ahead and be seated. I'm Joe Collins. Welcome to Shoreline Church. It is really, really cool to be with you this evening. I love coming down here and being a part of the worship with you guys. It's uh, always, always encouraging. You may know that we are in a series entitled Jesus Worth Following, and uh, last time I was here, we spoke about moments that matter. Today, I want to talk about starting over. So I always like to start off with something humorous, so I have something humorous right now, and we're going to start off with a top 10 list, okay? This is the top 10 reasons why God created Eve. Let's see. <laughs> got to be careful. I got to be careful. I'm, I'm aware of that. <laughs> Top 10 reasons why God created Eve. Number 10. God was worried Adam would get lost in the garden and refuse to ask for directions. <laughs> Number 9. God knew one day Adam would lose the remote and need someone to find it and bring it to him. <laughs> Number eight, God knew Adam would never buy himself a new fig leaf when his old one wore out. <laughs> Number seven, God knew Adam would never be able to make a doctor, dentist, or hair current appointment on his own. Number six, God knew Adam would never remember which night was trash night. Yeah. <laughs> Five, God knew that Adam would never be able to handle the pain and discomfort of childbearing. <laughs> Number four, that is true, by the way. As keeper of the garden, Adam would never remember where he left his tools. Number three, apparently added needed someone to blame. <laughs> number two, it is not good for man to be alone. And the number one reason why God created Eve. When God had finished creating Adam, he stepped back and he said, I can do better. <laughs> You know, God is not afraid to try again. He's not afraid to, to start over when he needs to. And I don't think we should be afraid either. Let's go to God in prayer, and we're going to get into God's word tonight. Father, thank you so very much for bringing us together. Thank you for this great fellowship down here, for these great people. And I just pray that your spirit is with us, that you speak through me to all of us, myself included. Help our hearts to be uh, moved by you and by the scriptures. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So to give you a little context, it's it's Monday. Last time I was here, it was Sunday, the last week of Jesus's life. On Sunday, he met a, a, a crowd of thousands, maybe tens of thousands at the city of Bethphage, and they 
He, he went into the city to a great parade, a great procession. He rode on a, on a colt and people were ca- calling praises to God and, and, and acknowledging him as the Messiah, as their savior. And it was, it was a wonderful day. It was a day we call the triumphal entry. When he got into the city, by the time it was all over, there was nothing left to do. It got dark. And in, in a world where there was no light, everybody goes to bed when it gets dark. So Jesus left. He went back to Bethany, a city that he was staying in not more than two miles away. And now we pick it up on Monday, the following day. And he enters, he's heading back into the city of Jerusalem. And along the way, he has to pass through the city of Bethphage. And I don't know if you can see that map very well. But if you follow the red line there, it goes from Bethany up to the top of the Mount of Olives, then down through Bethphage, then down and into the city, the temple. And that's no more than two miles. It's a a pretty casual walk. Mm -hmm. And so on the way, somewhere between Bethany and Bethphage, nearing the city of Bethphage, Jesus sees a fig tree and he's hungry. It's morning. He wants to eat some breakfast. And the fig tree's got all its leaves, but there's no fruit on it. And so he curses the fig tree. The weird thing about the story is that it wasn't seasoned for, for figs yet. It was still two months away. So it seems very unusual that Jesus would curse a tree for not having fruit when it wasn't even seasoned for fruit. In fact, scholars, when they study this passage, they struggle with it. They don't understand. And it's one of those passages that is kind of difficult. But I think if we just appreciate the context for a minute... I think you're going to be able, by the time we leave today, to understand why he cursed the fig tree. If you remember from yesterday, Bethphage was the city where the the Sanhedrin had an office, so to speak. The Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. And they had two offices, one in the temple, which was the headquarters, and then they had one in the city of Bethphage. Now, Bethphage was always considered a part of the city of Jerusalem. Even though it was outside the wall, it was still considered part of the city. And it was there at Bethphage that the Sanhedrin would uh, convene and they would make rulings based on things that had to do with beginnings and ends. I know that sounds confusing, but they would rule on when is Passover season going to start? When is it going to end? When is the new year going to start? It was things like that. It was a function that they did there at Bethphage. In fact, they purposely put the city outside of Jerusalem because they wanted to get away from the light pollution and any other things that were going on in Jerusalem so that at night, the astronomers could see the stars. They could tell when the seasons are changing. They could march, they could um, mark time. And that's how they knew like, oh, it was time for Passover. Oh, it's time for the new year. Oh, it's time for this. Yep. Right? Kind of cool. This is a cool insight. If you're, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I love the Lord of the Rings. Remember there's a scene in one of them, I forget which one, where they light a signal fire and there's like a whole like two minute scene of signal fires being lit all across the landscape. That's kind of what they did actually. when, When they would acknowledge, oh, Passover's coming, they would light a signal fire. And for miles around, other signal fires would get lit and that's how people in the surrounding area knew, oh, Passover's coming. Yeah, that's awesome. And that was all decided there at Bethphage. So Jesus arrives on his way into the city and he curses a fig tree there at the city of Bethphage. And the disciples took note of it. But they didn't quite understand exactly what that meant. Again, by the end of today, I think you will. But let me just say this. In all of our Christian lives, in all of our religious experience, there's always 
times where we have to start over. There's always times for new beginnings. And I think that's a lot of what was going on here in the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus was indicating something to them. He was indicating that something was coming to an end and something was about to begin. Now, I'm going to leave you with that because we'll come back to it. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 15. On, re on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So Jesus leaves Bethphage, he goes through the city, and he heads on in to the city of Jerusalem. And specifically, he goes in to the temple courts. Now, again, it's Monday, but it's, it's Passover celebration. And so the city of Jerusalem is filling up with pilgrims from all over the area. People by the thousands are streaming into the city. The population is probably quadrupled by this point in the city of Jerusalem. And everybody's in and out of the temple. There's a lot going on at the temple. And we learn in this account that when Jesus enters into the temple complex, he begins clearing it of the money changers, the, 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 uh, the merchants, and the caravans that were using the temple courtyard as a pass-through for their, for their merchandise. I want to show you an artist rendering of the temple complex in the time of Jesus. If you notice there, there's a, a large courtyard, and then inside that courtyard is sort of a rectangular wall, and then inside of that there's a tall building. That tall building was where the Holy of Holies is and the holy place is, where the presence of God was believed to exist. Just outside of that large building, there was a, what, a labor like a giant basin where they would do ceremonial washings, baptisms, they would offer sacrifices. There was an altar for the, for the burnt offerings. And that thing was working all the time. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of times a day, there would be sacrifices and different things going on. Just outside of, the, uh, of the, where the laver and the, and the altar are, you see a, a kind of a dividing wall in that middle rectangle. That was called the Hall of the Israelites. That's where Israelite men could go and worship. They could bring their sacrifices, wait patiently while they were all offered. And then you see the blue text there right in the middle. It says the court of women. That, that large uh, square area was where women, Jewish women, could go and worship. Yeah. Outside of that, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a very small wall there called the balustrade. Kind of like a low wall. No foreigner, no exile, no uh, physically disabled or deformed person could pass that wall. In fact, there were signs on it that said, if you cross here, you cross on pain of death. The only people allowed past that wall were what they called true Israelites. They were men and women who had no physical defects. They were in good standing in the sanctuary, in the temple, and they had a pedigree. They could prove their Jewish heritage. 
everyone else worshipped in that giant courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. That was their church. Now you might say, man, that's, that's segregation. That seems, that seems not like God. Well, the truth is, yes, it was segregation. And yes, it is God. But God didn't do that to be purposely mean to people. What God did was he wanted people to see an example of what they could be. He wanted them to see an ideal. And a pure Israelite who didn't defame, didn't uh, mar his body in any way, didn't disfigure himself in any way, who honored the faith and lived according to the, the, the Ten Commandments, was in good standing. He was the model. He was the ideal, the role model. And God wanted Israel to be a role model for the rest of the world. And so you have these separations at that time in the Jewish religion. And they were ordained by God. But here's the thing. Jesus did something incredibly profound. Remember I said that the fig tree that he cursed represented the end of something. And we're going to talk about what that is. You're going to know by the end of this sermon what that was. Well, when Jesus entered into the courtyard of the Gentiles, what he saw was not a place of worship, but a swap meet. And he was livid. He was incensed that they would turn this area, this area set aside for people who could not go beyond that little wall. They could not enter in any closer. But nonetheless, there was a place for them. And 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 it was being turned into a swap meet. There would have been merchant, merchant tables set up. There would have been money changers. There would have been camels and other animals passing through this area, using it as a, as a, a pass-through. If you can believe this, the high priest at the time was making money off of that process. He was charging the caravans a little bit of money as they would come through. And so he was, he was getting fat and rich. And so were the, the other religious leaders. They were all taking a cut off of the merchant tables. You know when you go to a baseball game and a hot dog is like 10 bucks? Yet, you know, you go to, you go somewhere else and it's two duck. You go to Wiener Schnitzel and it's two bucks? Yeah. That's what was going on there. The merchants that, that set up shop there were charging exorbitant prices. Yeah. Because if you're a pilgrim and you have to come from all the way up in Palestine somewhere, you may travel two, three days. It might be a, a journey of 50 miles. You're not going to bring your lamb with you that you want to sacrifice. I mean, you might, but that's a hard journey to make. And so when you get to the temple, you got to buy a lamb for your sacrifice or a bird or whatever the case may be. And they would charge exorbitant prices. They were gouging. Then when you got there, you weren't allowed to give Roman coins at the temple. You had to give Jewish coins at the temple. And so just like if you've ever traveled, I don't travel much, but I've had the chance to travel a little bit. And when you travel, you get off the airplane in another country and you got to go to the money changer. Yeah. You got to convert your money into other money. So we go to, you know, Europe and, uh, you know, and the euro is worth more than a dollar. So it's very depressing when you do that. Yeah, it is depressing. Last time I was there, it was almost equal and it was like greatest day ever. But, uh, so you, you go and, and they, they take a cut. There's an, ex there's a cost for that. Well, they would charge an exorbitant rate for that. 
It's really easy when you think about this story to think, man, Jesus is down with capitalism. But that's not actually what Jesus was condemning. He's not upset that there was money changers, that there was uh, uh, merchants selling things. That's not what's in view. We're going to read in a minute. That's not actually what upset him. Right. He's, he's not bothered if we set up donuts in the back and sell them for a, uh, 50 cents to, for a fundraiser. That's not what this is about. This is about something much more profound, much, something much more significant. And it's one of these things where, as I've been meditating on this and working on this, it brings tears to my eyes because it's incredibly profound and powerful and meaningful to me what Jesus was upset about and why he overturned the money tables and why he cleared the courtyard. And I hope you will give me a few minutes to go deep. Because what we're going to do today is we're going to go deep into God's word. And I need you to stay with me because it's powerful and because it matters. So as Jesus is clearing the court, he's quoting scripture. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, you know, gone into your son's room and it's a mess and you start throwing things around and quoting scripture at him? Jesus is in there, and he's quoting scripture. He quotes two scriptures specifically, very famous passages of the Bible. Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. Now, I told you we were going deep. you got to know something. In this time, and for, for, for history, for, for, you know, up until the modern era, it was very common for believers to memorize large parts of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Children as young as five would learn entire books by memory. Quick little side point, memorization is always good when it comes to God's Word. And so when Jesus walked in there, he didn't have a scroll with him as he was quoting these verses. He was doing it out of memory. And let me make one other point that you need to know. When he quoted Isaiah... He specifically said, is it not written my house will be called the house of prayer of all nations? That wasn't where he didn't end there. He didn't stop. That wasn't all he said. Mark just wrote that quote down. And the reason why is because that's how they would, would reference scripture in their day. They didn't have chapter and verse. They didn't say Isaiah 56, verse 4. What they said was, my house will be a house of prayer. And everybody went, oh, that's back in the Isaiah scroll. And then they understood the whole story. Because the Isaiah scroll is actually quite long. And the section Jesus quotes is actually quite significant. And so he wasn't just giving us, uh, he wasn't just making one statement. He was giving us the reference point. So the whole point of this is to go back now to that part of Isaiah and read it in context, and then we understand why Jesus cleared the temple. Will you read it with me now? Let's go back and look. And I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's quite lengthy, but I'm going to read enough to where you can understand what Jesus was so upset about. We're going to be Isaiah 56, verse 4. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name 
better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer." Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. What is it that so ticked Jesus off? What is it that got him to the point of infuriation? to where he would tear down tables and make such a dramatic scene in the temple. It was the fact that the religious leaders had turned the church for the eunuchs, for the foreigners, and for the exiles, everyone who couldn't go beyond that wall, into a dirty swap meet where they were being taken advantage of. That's what infuriated Jesus. He went all the way back to the prophet Isaiah and he said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. In fact, he went a step further and he said, a place of joy in my house. It was God's desire from the very beginning, all the way back when the, when the tabernacle and then turned into the temple, even back then, it was always God's desire for it to be a place for all nations. Mm. Yes, they had their place in the structure, yeah. but it was always intended to be a place where people could come and find joy. They could experience joy and pray to their God. Some of these people, let's take the eunuchs, for example. I will not get into the specifics, but a person was turned into a eunuch in a very violent and a very horrific way. It was not a surgical procedure. It was dastardly. And there were many in Israel and many outside of of the Jewish faith who had been made into eunuchs, not by their choice. When they were 10 years old, it was done to them. And in a culture when family was everything, you were taking away the one thing that mattered more than anything, the opportunity to have kids of your own. And I love what what, what Isaiah said, and Jesus quotes, he says to them, to the eunuchs. Verse 6, who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. God wanted something better for these people. These were people who have been scarred. They have been wounded. In some ways, it was permanent. And, And for many people, there was no going back. The damage was done. And then they sit there and say, what hope do I have? And God was screaming out to the nations, come to my house. I'm going to give you something better. You're going to experience something greater. Something better than having children. Better than having that wound erased. Better than having those scars taken away from you. It's going to be better. And yet they go to their church 
And it's filled with stalls and animals and people passing through. And there was no joy. It was taken from them. The religious leaders were doing that to those people. You think about the next group he mentions. To the exiles or to the foreigners. Verse 8, to the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to them, to love the name of the Lord and to keep his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy. You know, there were people that were moved to go to the temple. They weren't even believers. They were from other nations, but they wanted to see what this was about. Maybe they had heard something. Maybe they had seen something. And, and the world that they lived in wasn't offering what was satisfying. And so they were searching. God had put it onto their heart to come to the temple and find something. And he wanted to give them something better. He wanted to give them joy. The last group that's mentioned are the exiles. These were Jews who could not prove their pedigree. They couldn't prove their Jewish heritage because a couple hundred years before, the Jewish people were taken into captivity and they were scattered all over Babylon and only some remained in in Judea in the land. And the ones that got scattered, they lost their heritage. So they weren't considered full-fledged Jews and they couldn't pass that wall. And God says, I want to give them something better. You see, the whole point of this separation between the the, the pedigreed, the unblemished, righteous Jews and everyone else, the whole point was not to make those people feel super special and better than everyone. The whole point was that those people would treat everyone else with incredible love and respect, that they would turn to them and give to them, that they would roll the red carpet out and give them joy. And they had turned that completely upside down. There was no joy. There was no house of prayer. There was this dirty, noisy business going on, being taken advantage of. That was what they were doing for others. That was church. If you weren't a pedigreed Jew. You see why Jesus got so upset? Do you see why he lost it in the best sense of the word? So what does he say next? Well, next he quotes another famous passage, Jeremiah 7. We're going to start in verse 4, I believe. Sorry, verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods? You have not known, and then come and you have not known. Then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While while you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name. The temple you trust in, the place I give you and your ancestors, I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your fellow, fellow Israelites and the people of Ephraim. 
Now again, I told you we're taking a deep dive. Jesus is preaching as he's clearing the temple. He's quoting Isaiah at length, and now he's quoting Jeremiah. Isaiah was a passage about, uh, about uh, uh, it was the, it was the, it was the uh, accusation. He was, he was making his case against the religious leaders. He was saying, you're guilty of this, this, and this. And that's what he was doing when he quoted Isaiah. Now he quotes Jeremiah, and he's passing judgment. He says, this is what I'm going to do to you as a result. The story in Jeremiah is interesting. Jeremiah lived hundreds of years before Jesus. He lived at a time when Babylon was the world power, and God told him to tell the Israelites that Babylon is going to invade and destroy them if they don't repent. And so Jeremiah prophesied again and again and again to the Israelite people, repent, repent, repent. They didn't listen. Babylon came in, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, carried everybody away into captivity. And for 70 years, there was no more worship at the temple. Jesus quotes that moment. He quotes that story from Jeremiah. And he says, you know, when that was happening in Jeremiah's day, when when that was going on, Jeremiah was telling the people, do you remember what happened at Shiloh? Jeremiah was talking about a time even before him when God passed judgment on Israel. Again, we're taking a deep dive. Follow me here. But way before Jeremiah, just after the Exodus, the Israelites wandered around in the desert for 40 years. They built a tabernacle, a mobile church, worship place. After the 40 years, they entered into the promised land and they took the tabernacle and they set it up at a city called Shiloh. And that's where everybody went to worship. Long before Jerusalem even existed, that was where they worshiped. But guess what? They got lazy. They got faithless. They started worshiping other gods. And so God destroyed the tabernacle. It's gone. It doesn't exist. It's completely gone. Raiders of the Lost Ark didn't happen. It's not true. It's not in a crate somewhere in a government thing. And if it is, Mike would know. Yes, it's true. He welded it. It's true. He would know. It's gone forever. In essence, please follow me here. In essence, what Jesus is saying is because of your lack of love for the people that you were supposed to love the most, Isaiah, God is going to remove the temple from you. And it's not going to be temporary like in the day of Jeremiah. No, it's actually going to be permanent like in the day of Shiloh. It's gone. Israel had failed. They had been given a mission. The mission was to love, and they failed. And Jesus was calling for the end. He was pronouncing judgment, and he was saying, it's over. I am done with you. And that last line in Jeremiah needs to haunt every one of us here. I will thrust you from my presence. That's what he said to the church in his day. Why? Because they failed to love the people that needed to be loved. That's right. It's true. You know, I thought about what makes me emotional is I I think about myself as a minister 20 years now, and I have failed to love people at times. 
I've treated people poorly. I've been prideful. I've been arrogant. I've run over people's feelings, ignored people. On and on it goes. It happens. I'm guilty. And I was so convicted when I looked at Jesus and how he acted towards people that did those kinds of things, how he felt about them. And I was ashamed of myself. There's one brother in, in, in the, the Shoreline Church in particular. We were just getting, I mean, the Simi Church, we were just getting things started. And we were having lots of challenges getting things started. And he was trying to help, but he was struggling to, to get stuff done. And I was just merciless on him. I just, I mean, he was driving me crazy. And I just had all kinds of attitudes. And I was totally missing the fact that he was just coming to help. He was just trying to be joyful. He was just trying to experience a little joy in the Lord. And I was taking that from him. I've apologized. I still apologize. I've apologized to people. Whenever I realize I've done something that robs them of their joy, of their opportunity to know the Lord, I'm sorry. I don't want to be that way. I don't ever want that to be said about me. You know, I think in our church, it's not just ministers that struggle with this. We are the Israelites in the Christian era. We're the pure, pure bloods. We're the unblemished. We get baptized. All our sins are washed away. We're new creations in Christ. But do we love the foreigner, the exile, the eunuch? Do we roll the red carpet out for people when they come to church? Do we come in here to give or do we come in here to take? You see, we can be guilty just as the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were. We can be guilty of the same crime. And we can end up facing the same judgment if we don't repent. We started something in See Me. We've been talking about it here too, but we, we say, we have this phrase and we use it all the time now. Belong before you believe. I love that phrase because that's exactly what I want the church to feel like to anyone who visits. Anyone who shows up, I want them to go, man, I fit here. I want that to be their first experience. I want to be here. I'm not ready to believe. I'm not even repented of all my sin yet. But man, I like coming here. And man, can I just not have two hours out of the week where I can come and be loved and love God and pray to Him? I know I'm distant. I know I'm scarred. I know I'm broken. But can I not have a couple hours of peace? Yeah. I want you to have a couple hours yeah. of peace. One of the areas that really hit home for me was thinking about kingdom kids. We call the kids that grow up in our church kingdom kids. And a lot of times, the kingdom kids aren't ready to become disciples. They're not ready at 15 or 14 or 16. And something weird happens, and I've noticed this, I've seen this happen. They get to be about 15, 16, 17, and suddenly we don't treat them like their family anymore. We start to judge them. 
We start to say, well, they should know better. And we don't want them to come to Devo because they're maybe a little annoying or whatever. And we blow them off and we start to reject them. And that is so hard for a child who grew up in here and this is his family. Everybody he knows, we're all aunts and uncles and he grows up with his best friends. And the next thing you know, his best friends don't hang out with him anymore. Because they're doing this over here and he's doing that over there. But the, the relationship ends. That should not be. True. People should be able to belong. Yep. If they're not uh, causing problems on Sunday morning, they should be able to belong. Mm-hmm. I hope you'll join me in adopting that kind of spirit. Yep. That desire to let people belong, to let them fit in. You know, up in Simi, we have our worship team. We let, we let visitors on the worship team. We used to have a big rule about that in the old days. Oh, you can never do that. We had rules about all kinds of things. We were a lot like the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And we made a lot of people feel alienated. People who've been hurt, victimized by, by others or by their own sin. People who get distant. No more. No more. Our mission is love. It's to love and to live like Jesus. That's our primary purpose. And we need to make every effort to accomplish that mission. Amen. Verse 20. I'm going to wrap up here. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says of this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So Jesus spent Monday in the temple courts preaching and clearing out the, 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 the court of the Gentiles. By evening, sun goes down, everybody goes home. Jesus leaves, he goes back to the city of Bethany where he stayed for that week. The next day is Tuesday. He gets up and he's on his way back to the city. He's on his way back into Jerusalem to the temple. Along the way, they go through the city of Bethpage and they, they see the fig tree and it's dead. And Peter goes, hey, the tree you cursed is dead. Jesus ignores it. He says nothing. So here's the question. And I, I want some feedback, some participation here. We're, we're almost done. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Have you figured out the reason yet? Bueller? Louder? Because it bore no fruit? What did the fig tree represent? Let's say it that way. Gio knows the answer. I already told him this. Yes. Yes. The fig tree represented Israel and the religious, the religious environment of the, the state of Israel. That's what it reflected. That's why he cursed it. Remember, Bethphage, which is where they are, was the city where things began and ended. Jesus ended the reign 
of unloving religion. Uh It ended there. No more. Jewish faith is over. It's done. There's no going back. It's withered. It's gone. That's what the fig tree represented. Then he went into the city and made it public. He, on Monday, he preached Isaiah. He preached Jeremiah. He made it public. This is over. This whole covenant, this whole religious system is done. The next day, they pass by the fig tree. There it is, dead. Peter goes, hey, it's dead. Jesus ignores it because it's done. It's over. There's no going back. Instead, he talks about faith and forgiveness. And he mentions this comment. He makes this comment about throwing a mountain into the sea. I want you to look at this picture. Probably a little hard to see from where you are. I'll try to do my best. But basically, this is a map or a model of of, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was like San Francisco. It was built on several different hills. Mm -hmm. Number three is the city of Jerusalem. Number two is where the temple was. And number one is the Mount of Olives, where Jesus was, where the city of Bethpage is. That whole area, all those hills, there was actually seven hills in total, but all those hills represented what people called Zion. It was that whole area. They just, it was just kind of short. Like we say San Francisco, but in San Francisco, there's Knob Hill and there's the Presidio. There's other, there's little areas. Well, but we just call it San Francisco. Well, same thing. They just called it Jerusalem or Zion. And it represented this whole area. I believe when Jesus was there up on Mount of Olives, he could see the whole area because that was the highest peak. And I believe what he was saying is when he said, throw this mountain into the sea, I think he was talking about Jerusalem. He was saying, man, we could got to throw this thing into the sea. It's done. It's over. Here's the point. It's time to start over. Mm -hmm. Jesus was telling his disciples, let it go. Throw this whole thing into the sea. Don't be enamored by the temple Mm -hmm. and all this heritage. Don't look back at the past. Throw it into the sea. It's time to start over. He wasn't establishing a religion of tradition and self-righteousness. He was establishing a religion of faith and forgiveness. And that's what the story is all about. And that's what the fig tree represents. And that's my challenge to us as a church. Shoreline's been around 27 years been a great fellowship and it's gone through different changes over those 27 years and here we are again at a new change we're at a new time and it's time to let the past go and it's time to move forward to let people belong before they believe to embrace mission love to love God and to love others to love and live like Jesus that's where we're headed and I'm asking you to join I'm asking you to be a part of it Because I believe that's what Jesus is calling us to do. I believe that's where he's asking us to go. So we can't be afraid to start over. Let's go ahead and stand. If we can go arm in arm, let's go across the aisle like we did a couple weeks ago. I'll close us out in a word of prayer.